Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We are riding with General Jan Smuts, and he has just entered the Cape Colony, an invasion that has been planned to coincide with spring in early September 1901. The master guerrilla fighter and his commando of around 400 men are in a spot of bother, however. As they entered the Cape, the route took them through Basutu territory, where they were set upon by around 300 warriors armed with rifles, spears, and knob carries. As we heard last week, they managed to fight off the attack, but lost three dead and seven wounded. They had also used up spare reserves of ammunition, which was a big problem. This commander was supposed to immediately begin sowing mayhem inside the Cape, but couldn't do so without Lee Medford rounds, their new choice of firearm, replacing the German Mauser. The Boers were now armed with the same weapons as the British because their supply chains had dried up and they were using attacks on the British to replenish ammunition and other material. Our narrator since the start of this podcast series, Denise Reitz, had joined General Smuts along with 10 others just before they crossed the Orange River into the Cape. Reitz had only four rounds left after the clash with the Basutu warriors that almost cost him his life. Invading hostile territory with virtually an empty rifle was not going to build confidence and rates fretted about this. They also had to think about the seven men who'd been injured in the skirmishes with the Basutu. We halted for an hour to give the wounded men a rest and as we had no lint, bandages or medical supplies, there was little we could do for them. The injured men were placed in their saddles and slowly the commander moved off, tailed at a distance by the Basutu who hadn't given up tracking the Boers. After a few miles, the members of what's known as Herschel's Mounted Police eventually retired, and by the afternoon of the first day in the Cape, the commando came across a farmhouse. That's where the seven injured men were left to be tended, eventually by the British, and then shipped to prison of war camps. We rested our exhausted animals till dusk, and then saying goodbye to the wounded men in the house, we rode on for five or six miles before camping, said Rates. Spring in South Africa brings rain, and that's what began falling. It was still bitterly cold at night, as they were on the high ground of the interior, and the men were now lying in mud and water. This weather coming on top of the crowded events of the last 24 hours gave us our first taste of what was awaiting us in the Cape Colony, and thus early we began to appreciate the fact that our road was going to likely be a thorny one. His terrible few days had only just begun. The next morning, the rain turned into a fine drizzle, which the commander rode through, shivering. None of the men had clothing suited to such weather. My own wardrobe was typical, a ragged coat and worn trousers full of holes, with no shirt or underwear of any kind. On my naked feet were dilapidated rawhide sandals, patched and repatched during eight months of wear, and I had only one frayed blanket to sleep under at night. There was stark silence in the ranks as the men rode on in misery. But the landscape was changing to reflect a countryside that was not racked by war. Unlike the Free State and Transvaal, where the farms were being burnt as part of Lord Kitchener's scorched earth policy, here in the Cape, men were working peacefully in the fields, while women and children stared at the passing commando, unafraid. The people here were Boer sympathizers. They were Cape Afrikaners and began to ply the commander with foods most of the men had not seen for more than a year. Gifts of coffee, sugar, salt, tobacco were ungrudgingly made, and the first slice of bread and butter and the first sip of coffee I had tasted for a year 
almost made the long journey worthwhile. This raised the men's spirits, and, coupled with the friendly greeting from the residents, some of the Boers relaxed. I dare say we posed a little before the womenfolk, laughing and whistling as we rode along. But that changed quickly as they slowly moved up a mountain pass, for at the top they looked down on the strategic town of Lady Grey. A British column of soldiers was busy in the valley and the Boers were spotted. General Smuts turned left and left the soldiers far behind, at least for now. Night fell and the temperature dropped towards freezing once more and rain continued to fall. Our commander presented a strange appearance as we wound along, admits Rates. We had no raincoats, so we used our blankets as cloaks against the downpour, and the long line of draped horsemen looked like a tribe of red Indians on the warpath. This long line of horsemen, nearly 400 strong, came to a halt at night in the rain, sleepless and wet, then continued trekking through the wet dawn with a cold and miserable biting wind in their faces, until they reached a place ominously called Murdenar's Poort, or Murderer's Way. Eerily, the wind dropped and the rain stopped. A black herdsman could be seen nearby who told the commander that the English were camped a few miles away. General Smuts, always the proactive leader with the emphasis on active, decided he needed to head off to see how large the column was. He selected two young free staters who joined him on the way down, as well as a man named Nietling from Pretoria, who was Reitz's friend. The commander waited as the general and the three scouts rode off, with Smuts saying he'd be back before dark. But at sunset, there was no sign of their general. It was almost midnight when they heard the sound of someone approaching. It was Smuts, but on foot and alone. He had been ambushed by a British patrol, who had killed all three of his scouts and all the horses, and the general had evaded capture by sliding down a small crevice. Had he been killed, I believe that our expedition into the Cape would have come to a speedy end, for there was no one else who could have kept us together. Rates was right. The other two leaders of the two units of the commando were Jacobus van Deventer and Ben Bouvet. While excellent leaders neither possessed the personality nor influence that Smuts had. Jacobus van Deventer, just by the way, ended up fighting for the British against Germany in East Africa during the First World War. And in a bizarre twist that proves how wonderful historical circumstance can be, van Deventer led the British 2nd East African Division and then the East African Expeditionary Force in German East Africa between 1915 and 1918. Even more ironic, van Deventer was faced by a guerrilla force led by the remarkable German commander, Colonel Paul von Leto Vorbeck, and equally ironically, never managed to capture the German before the end of the First World War. Back on the hillside, Smuts did not appear injured and said nothing. The commando spent the night there, sleepless, and before daylight there was a ruckus. A porcupine came grunting through the lines, and horses don't like porcupines. They stampeded as a group, thundering off in the dark, crashing through the thornbush fences and undergrowth in blind terror. When the sun rose, there wasn't a single horse to be seen. With an English force in the vicinity, this was a serious predicament, for they would make short work of us if we were dismounted, Reitz admitted in his memoirs. It took some hours to track the horses down, but eventually all were returned. So we must leave General Smuts and his troubles in the Cape at this point and return to the British plans. 
Lord Kitchener and his officers knew who was running about in their colony, and it was a matter of extreme frustration that the already famous general was on the loose. The Basutu had already informed the British about the confrontation across the river from Sastron, and the word was out. Way to the northeast in this war, however, the British were starting to achieve some of their aims, and it took enterprising officers who ignored their somewhat out-of-date training at Aldershot to spice up their military tactics. As I explained last week, the British had resorted to moving at night and attacking at dawn, a tactic that the Boers had been using so effectively for the entire war. In the northeastern Transvaal, Colonel B.E. Benson had been listening and learning and now began to harass the Boers using their own tactics. Benson had initially read the Battle of Marchesfontein so well more than a year before and appeared to have a knack for understanding how to hit the enemy at the weakest point, both in terms of geography and psychologically. He knew that if he caught the Boers out of their saddles and by surprise, there was a good chance of a successful battle. He was 40 years old by now, with a square, good-humoured face, stubby nose and bushy moustache. His large, almost lethargic eyes gave little hint of just what a dynamic thinker he was, and he felt himself more than a match for any other soldier on the field, Boer or British. The technique he was perfecting was called the night raid, which wasn't really a night raid, it was a night ride, followed by an early dawn attack on a Boer lager. And when I say night ride, it wasn't some little local amble. He would ride up to 40 miles in the dark, which took his Boer opponents completely by surprise. Boer scouts would report Benson miles away, and then the commander would relax. After sunset, and without fanfare, Benson would leave his fires burning and move off unseen. By the beginning of September 1901, he had made more than half a dozen successful raids against Boer lagers using this technique. What was inspiring about this leader is that he had been specifically trained not to ride his horses for long stints at night. But that was the Wolseley tactic taught back at Aldershot, because the theory was riding at night made the horses tired. Of course, as winter made way for spring in South Africa, riding the horses at night was actually likely to tire horses out less than during the hot days. Benson was also guided by the eightlander called Wool Samson, hated by the Boers, who had been arrested after the infamous Jameson raid of 1895-96 and refused the amnesty granted by President Paul Kruger. He therefore spent years in prison until the Boer War and then worked for the British as an intelligence specialist. He knew the terrain around the eastern Transvaal intimately and could speak both Afrikaans and black languages. But lurking in the northern parts of this large region was General Louis Boerter, who was planning a major attack on the British, but further south. Lord Kitchener's August 7 proclamation that threatened to banish all Boer leaders to exile for life unless they surrendered then came and went on September 15 without a single success. It was also warming up. Some rains had fallen, which meant forage for horses and better mobility for the Boers. Vegetation thickened, and the featureless brown of winter was replaced by greens of all types, behind which the Boers could take cover. The British were tougher and smarter now, with the raw troops seasoned by two years of fighting an elusive enemy across the plains, forests and deserts of South Africa. The Boers had also lost around 9,000 men in the last few months, as Kitchener's drives across the felt showed some results. Although for the war office back in London, it wasn't quick enough. The cost of supporting 250,000 men in South Africa had now climbed to one and a half million pounds a week, and it remained to be seen whether the difficult winter had damaged Boer resolve in any meaningful way. 
You see, back in the home country, in England, winter was on its way, and the population found no romance in the tales of the concentration camps where women and children were dying, nor in the blockhouse and small skirmish-style guerrilla campaign where honorable battles were few and far between. Worse, casualties appeared to be rising once more as the spring arrived back in South Africa. Back in England, Parliament had been almost frozen during the August and early September sessions, mainly caused by Irish nationalist filibustering. They were called Friends of the Enemy in a disparaging array of reports in various newspapers. The Liberal Party was split along pro- and anti-Boer lines at the same time, with the pro-Boer wing closely aligned to the Irish Party. All through the parliamentary sessions that summer, the Irish Party had stymied debates and slowed decisions. Even the pro-Boer sections of the Labour Party were sometimes left blanching as the Irish Party denounced the British Army, called on God to strengthen the Boers, and prayed openly in their churches that the Boers may someday take South Africa to independence from the British. There were demonstrations in favour of the Boers, then counter-demonstrations in favour of the British. The Unionist Conservation Coalition was reeling. So it was then on the 7th of September that General Louis Butcher began forming a large column with a view to invading the British colony of Natal from the Transvaal. Jan Smuts was battling through the Cape as we know, and the idea was to take the war directly to the British themselves to recapture the initiative. General Butcher gathered 1,000 men near Ermelo in the eastern Transvaal, close to the Swaziland border, and then put out the word that others could join him as he rode south. To keep the British distracted, he left Ben Fulhun behind, which was a mistake. Fulhun had been communicating with the British and feuding with fellow Boer leaders, but Butcher was giving him a second chance. The vital railway line to Delago Bay was now protected by blockhouses, as well as the line to Cape Town. The eastern Transvaal had been racked by this war for over a year now, and some areas the level of lawlessness began to worry both Boer and British authorities. The Boers also had been executing black soldiers out of hand after warning both black and coloured soldiers who were armed and fighting for the British that this was supposedly a white man's war. Not all Boer commanders were following this to the letter. However, the number of black soldiers began to rise the longer this war continued. The attack by the Basutu on General Jan Smuts, which we heard about in the previous podcast through the eyes of Denise Reitz, was not an isolated incident. Remember how around 300 Basuta had descended on Smuts and his 400 men soon after they crossed the Orange River into the Cape and had killed three Boers and wounded seven. These were part of a unit that belonged to Herschel's Mounted Rifles, an auxiliary corps of a few hundred men set up by the British expressly to prevent incursions by Boer commandos. As Martin Bossenbroek, the Dutch historian, recently discovered in his research for his book called The Boer War, I've used that extensively in this series, similar border police units recruited from coloured communities and blacks were operating in the northwestern Cape as well. Like the border scouts, the Bushmanland borderers, and the Namaqualand border scouts, these were well-armed and organised mounted men across the country who knew both how to fight and how to move swiftly on the South African felt. And they were black. As the war progressed, the British were engaging increased numbers of Africans and coloureds to perform various duties, including combat, much to the Boers' consternation. Smuts had run into one of these units and now knew just how effective they were as part of the British army. 
The deployment of Africans and Khalids had been a bone of contention from the start of the war, with both Boer and Britain exchanging fierce letters to each other complaining of how the other side was breaking the agreement at the start of the war in October 1899 that only whites would be allowed to fight whites. That was particularly during the siege phase where Ladysmith, Kimberley and Mafeking all saw black soldiers fighting on both sides, albeit in different ways. For example, the Boers made use of armed scouts to help attack the cities and unarmed black spies as well. This was hardly a non-weaponized labor force. Spying implies both a military and an intelligence function that is crucial to any army. Both sides violated their unwritten agreement. In the case of Mafeking, it was particularly ironic which led to increased tensions between black people as they sided with one or the other army. The Chidi Baralong were rivals of the Rapulana Baralong and the Boer War exacerbated this simmering low-level conflict. After the fall of Pretoria in June 1900, most black Achtereas left their Boer armies while the British actually increased the number of black soldiers and support staff. Considerably more auxiliaries were most engaged in labour such as trench digging, porting, herding, guarding and sometimes cattle rustling. In the guerrilla phase, they took part in drives, helping to burn and loot farms and livestock, as well as transporting Boer women and children to the concentration camps. By mid-1901, this had increased dramatically as the blockhouses were being constructed. Large numbers of Africans and coloreds were employed to transport the material across the country. At least 25,000 blacks were engaged as sentries, adding to the 60,000 white soldiers guarding the blockhouses. The British, of course, had a vast labour pool drawing from their colonies as well as Boer republics, and further afield in the Bechuana land and Basuta land and Swaziland. But the Boers were growing anxious about the numbers of black soldiers they were running into, and the generals discussed this amongst themselves. The principle of racial hierarchy, which was one of the basic tenets of their religious faith, was being undermined in their own territory. As we'll hear in future podcasts, there were a number of incidents other than the Basuto attack on Jan Smuts that began to take place where black soldiers and Boers clashed. So please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can and post a review if you have time. You can also send me messages through the website abwarpodcast.com and through my Twitter feed at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Ja,